and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How's life? Well, none of my friends have turned up dead in a dentist's office, and nor are any of them dead in a forest <laughs> by a shape-shifting alien. So I think uh, things are going pretty well. Oh, excellent. Well, that sounds like a very positive result. So, this week, we are dipping into the Companion Chronicles, and that means we're going to be covering two stories. We are going to be covering the third Doctor story, The Bluetooth, and we're going to be covering the first Doctor story, Mother Russia. Uh, but let's start with The Bluetooth. Kev, would you care to give us our summary? Sure. Liz Shaw is going to visit her friend Jean when she learns that she has gone missing and her cat is killed. <laughs> uh, this unfortunate event sort of unravels a whole conspiracy where she gets a sort of implant at a dentist's office that starts taking over her brain as they well as they learn about the involvement of the Cybermen who are starting to convert people around the area in sort of a last-ditch attempt, as Cybermen are often want to do, in order to convert all of England using what little failing resources they have. Which does result in her uh, the death of her friend Jean and Unit having to clean up the mess. And yeah, it's a very depressing story. <laughs> yeah, especially for this kind of vintage of the Doctor for the basically season seven. It's not, yeah, it's not the cheeriest story that we could ever encounter. But I think one of the sort of great advantages of the Companion Chronicles range, and particularly something like this, doing the Companion like um, Liz Shaw, is that because she doesn't get a proper on-screen departure, we never really understand how her story ends. It means there's a lot of scope in between the end of Inferno uh, and the, the, the start of Terror of the Autons to, to do something with the character and give her give her some play. And that's exactly what this story does. It really kind of uh, sort of finds a way to kind of dig into, into Liz Shaw and, and how she works with Unit uh, and, and the Doctor. So, um, yeah, um, what did you think of this one? I mean, I really like it. I think Carolyn John's a fantastic narrator. I think she really sells this relationship with Jean. I love all the little digressions she goes into her own past, where she sort of fills in these sort of blanks in her history or just ruminates on the events she's gone through. And I think all of that is just kind of really sweet and lovely. even And so it really stands out against a very, as I mentioned before, dark story. And so all of that, I am just a big fan of. Yeah, me too. I think one of the best things about this is undoubtedly Caroline John. It's just amazing how easily she fits back into the role of Liz. Um, you know, one of the inevitable things about having people from, you know, the show's, shall we say, long history um, going back is that it's inevitable that, you know, these people have um, got older, their voice has changed, the way that they perform has changed. That's just natural with the, the passing of time but one of the most remarkable things about Caroline John is she doesn't sound like she's changed at all it's it's absolutely she, she must have been put in a stasis chamber after Inferno finished I think and just brought out for whenever Pig finished needed to do a story she's amazing in this story I love she's such a an amazing voice for the narration completely agree with you when you say that and she is such a way of inhabiting the character that you wouldn't have believed that it had been so long you know since she since she had last played it she's just such a, a natural at bringing this character to life it's a very warm character it's one that's very easy to kind of identify with and invest in but that's also what makes the kind of the horror of this story 
stand out as well because it's happening to somebody who who you care about it's happening to somebody that it is very easy to like and sympathize with so all the stuff that happens to her both in terms of you know what happens to Jean and all that kind of stuff but also what happens to her personally with the the the, the bluetooth with the the dentist's office and all that kind of stuff it's 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 uh, you know it's much more kind of horror tinged than i think any anything else in season seven would have been but it feels like it works for this character and i think so much of that is resting on Caroline John's ability to to strike that balance between bringing the character alive, but also to sort of successfully narrate the story. She absolutely nails both parts of that. Yeah, and it's a pretty tall order. I mean, we've covered, uh, we're covering three so far companion chronicles that do that well, but I mean, we've skipped uh, quite a few that don't do it successfully at all. <laughs> I think, and it's not there are specific well there are specific actors that are better at it than others, but in general, like. Good actors have bad days. People who are left in Cincinnati have times to knock it out of the park. And it really does vary story to story of how engaged performance you're getting. And I think this just happens to hit the alchemy right. I don't remember Carolyn John's other Companion Chronicles that well, but I don't think she's an unreliable performer for sure. But more to the point, this is just a really well-written story that really lets her sort of go off on it and really sink her teeth into creating this vision of the character it's so well realized well i was actually surprised by how good this story was because i think the first time i think it's only the second time i've listened to it the first time i listened to it i don't remember it being all that i don't think i ever thought it was bad but i thought it was just kind of like yeah you know it's okay it wasn't one of the companion chronicles that jumped out at me i think when we were originally discussing what companion chronicles we wanted to cover one of the reasons for covering this wasn't so much the story it was just that we don't have an awful lot of opportunities to talk about caroline john and to talk about uh Les shaw uh, and so we wanted to cover it here so that we had the chance to be able to talk about um both of them um but actually revisiting it this is a much stronger story than i was expecting it to be the Cybermen are okay here. I don't think they're astoundingly well used or, or badly used. As they um, often are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think they play the function well. They, they, they provide the kind of the, the necessary kind of horror of the story. Um, and it's a, easier to do that with a shorthand like the Cybermen around rather than trying to get an entirely new kind of race, you know, on spec for this kind of story. We don't need to have reams of exposition or, or, or backstory or anything it's, it's the cybermen they convert people right we've got it okay now we can get on to the the kind of things that the story wants to do um but it's just so much more successful um than than i sort of uh than i expected it to be have, have you listened to this before and, and did you think it was better or worse than the first time you listened to it i listened to it before and yeah i also don't remember having much of a reaction to it but this time i think i liked it a lot more I think it's a story that benefits from sort of active listening as we sort of have to do for this podcast and really sort of digging into the character. And I think, yeah, it's a lot, we get a lot more appreciation from it, from sort of trying to dig into it because there's a lot of depth to it. Well, there is. And, and, um, one of the kind of, one of the things I enjoy so much, I, I think I've mentioned this before in the podcast, about the Companion Chronicles, is that they, they achieve something which almost no other um, part of Doctor Who has really managed, which is it gives us a genuinely different perspective um, because all these stories are being told specifically from, obviously, the you know the, the position of the Companion. So we don't have an omniscient third uh, sort of third-party uh, narrator. It's not being told from the Doctor's perspective, but it's really this thing and i think 
especially with a story like the Bluetooth, it really takes and runs with that. So like you mentioned earlier on about little details about Liz, Liz's private life, about how she, uh, she maybe she had her first boyfriend at university or how she used to be a terrible prude before she, she met June or whatever. And she helped to draw out this, her shell. These are small little details in, in her backstory, but they help to fill in so much with the character. And, and, and Caroline John has got such a nice, kind of lightness of touch when she's discussing these aspects she's got such a nice way of being able to kind of you know she could be sort of you know like especially with the like the boyfriend thing she's kind of you know wryly reflecting on her past and sort of acknowledging that maybe she made a mistake about being so uptight when she was in the past and now her perspectives have changed and her eyes have been opened and all this and she's got this lovely kind of rueful way of delivering these lines that that you just you you feel the character being fleshed out in front of you, and that that difference in perspective, the way that we get to experience the real horror that Liz goes through in this, and her kind of very visceral reaction at the end of the play, it it, it feels almost more. I don't want to say more honest, that's not exactly right, but it feels more true than if it had just been, you know, like the doctor in the middle of the story, because he's not going to be horrified in the same way. So he would have, you know, previously been in the centre of the narrative, and then off to one side you would have Liz going, oh, no, no, no well, this is terrible, this is awful. But because Liz is the central focus and it's the doctor that's pushed off to one side, we get a much sort of stronger read on, on the, the character and how she reacts to it. And that just, it makes all the difference for a play like this because we really need to invest in her reaction if, if we're to believe any of the stuff which is going on and because Caroline John is so strong in being able to deliver that you, you absolutely become you know wrapped up in that story yeah it really is the strength of Caroline John that really carries this you have the wistful side you have the horrified side you have the sort of uh, melancholic side and I think all of those work so well sort of in concert with each other. And I think that's sort of the trick of Companion Chronicles is they're written in the passive voice. So it can be hard, I think, to sort of engage with it actively for an actor, for a listener as well. But I think this is a really fantastic example of sort of those elements working for it just through, I guess, determination, talent, skill. <laughs> I don't know, but it, it's a really impressive example. Well, it is. And I think there's some interesting decisions taken here, which aren't necessarily the most obvious ones that the play could have taken, but I think that they're ones that work really well for the story. So, for example, this is a four-parter. This story is only an hour long. So that means you get four very short sections, you know, like 15-minute episodes, um, just to, to give it, you know, that... But it gives it a sense of pace, there's a real sense of pace about it. It feels like there aren't any four parters in, except for Spearhead from Space. There aren't any four parters in um, season seven, but it does give it that that sense of pace. It gives it a you know a, a zip to it, uh, which I think if it had either been one whole episode or maybe even like two half hour episodes, I don't think it would have quite had that. But I think that pace is important. Because although there's plenty of time for the characters to have these little digressions and sort of reminiscences and whatever, it's also important that the the, the, the sort of compressed time frame that everything happened in is, is realised because that also helps to drive the horror. It, 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 it makes, you know, everything seem more urgent 
and that's really important and I don't think that that's an obvious choice for yeah like a one hour companion chronicle to make so I really admire those kind of decisions I don't know if that was part of the original script or whether that was maybe you know something that came out in the production or you know I don't know but but who, whoever's decision it was it was absolutely the right one yeah it's it's a really fantastic decision and I think it really has a sort of ripple effect throughout the whole story where everything is sort of risen by it yeah I mean I, I it's hard to sort of say what else to say because it really is just a very solid story where every element just sort of works so well together well I think one of the other things that I'd definitely like to mention is that we have a, a sense of history being introduced here as well so this is um very much establishing itself as um part of the ongoing continuity of sort of between season seven and season eight but it doesn't force it down it so we like we get um, a few references to Captain Yates here, but Liz just very offhandedly refers him refers to him as the new boy, and of course that's correct because he's not in season seven; he's introduced in season eight, and that's a very subtle, sort of gentle way of implying where this kind of falls chronologically. Obviously, this isn't going to be Liz's departure story; it's not her last story, but we start to get this story positioned sort of chronologically within that spectrum without it just being a big clunky reference to, well, Doctor, you know, this is just like the time where we um, escaped from that lava in a parallel Earth or, or you know, or whatever, or we met those astronauts from Mars. Um, you know, it, it's just a, it's a very nice way of being able to handle sort of continuity without it just being um, sort of, you know, pushed down your throat. Um, and those little moments, all those little beats, I think it's one of the things that really makes this story such a success because it, it doesn't have time to do the big kind of expository speeches. Um, and so instead we get these just these little fine details and they add up to so much when you sort of you have the history and you have the knowledge of the show. Yeah, I think that's one of the sort of goals and benefits of Canadian Chronicles is it draws on that history and in general just sort of really uses that to its advantage. I think I mean, no one's buying the story who isn't a fan of Liz Shaw already, at least probably very few people. So here you have something that can like draw people to sort of memory of season seven and fondness for the character. And I mean, I am very fond of the character, so it works. And it's, I think that sort of lets it sort of get away with having this much more sort of digressive tone when it spends most of that first and second episode going in her relationship with Jean. We already have this sort of built in fondness for her, so we can sort of tolerate the sort of like, breaks in the action to sort of flesh her out more, since that's, I guess, what we're really here for, not to see the Cybermen do Cybermen things, which is never the most exciting thing, but uh, to see more of Liz as a character get more development. She only had those 20-odd episodes across four stories. Well, yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's nice to, I mean, for what the Cybermen have to do here, you know, we get the living metal thing, which is, okay, fine, It's it's not, super inventive you know even within doctor who we have um silver nemesis doing something similar i was never quite clear if the living metal was meant to be kind of like a reference to that or whatever i don't think it was but you know you know how we are <laughs> doctor who fans can't help <laughs> but try and draw these kind of slightly random click uh, connections but um yeah digressive tone i think that was the expression you used and i think that's a really lovely way of putting it um it it does have that for all the the kind of shock that we get for all the the kind of horror uh especially you know i think 
sort of as we get on through the story, I think we do start to get an expectation that maybe maybe Jean will survive. We have to have one or two deaths going on in order to try and sort of up the dramatic stakes a little bit. But I think that kind of is implied sort of very lightly that, that maybe the Doctor will be able to save her. And then in the end, he isn't. And I, I, it, I guess that could come across as sort of a little bit fatalistic or whatever, but I don't think it really does. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, what's, his, what's his name? Um, we get it with Broadwick where he has, um, you know, the, the stuff eating through him and all this kind of stuff. There is real kind of body horror here, which is fine for the mm-hmm. Cybermen. You know, that's yeah, that they're okay in that. Um, but it never becomes the focus. It never dominates the narrative. Um, and, and that, I think, is what allows the character of Liz to kind of breathe. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's good that the Cybermen are sort of taking a back seat here. They provide sort of the requisite body horror, but it's much more about an emotional journey rather than is like a sort of physical action one. And I think the body horror is very effective, especially in this. Like, I think it, the passive voice sort of lends it a hand here. It's almost more unsettling to hear Liz talk about how she was, like, trying to crash a car and eating books when it's sort of recounted rather than a sort of trumped-up dramatic scene of those sort of things happening. But I think in the end, the body horror is used fairly well and, but is always more flavoring and not the sort of centerpiece of the story. Well, yeah, and I think that's important because I think if it was the centerpiece of the story, it would come across as very indulgent or self-indulgent. It'd be very kind of um, attack of the Cybermen, kind of Eric Sayward. And it's really important that it doesn't go that far. Apart from anything, I mean, like you could you could do a, a late Fifth Doctor or Sixth Doctor story that tried to recapture that, but that feeling isn't how this era functioned. Um, so it's important that it can go so far in, in developing that kind of body horror, but it can't go the full way. It can't go like, yeah, the crushed hands and attack of the Cybermen or something like that. Even although what we actually get described here is more extreme, the distance uh, with the kind of narrative voice which is used here means it never feels that extreme, if that makes sense. And and so we, we don't get it becoming sort of self-indulgent and that that tendency to sort of avoid indulgence i think is another one of the great strengths of the story one thing which i think will be is is sort of noticeably different about this story as compared to um mother russia which we'll talk about shortly is that um although uh caroline john does a little bit of the kind of pertwee mannerisms she never does that kind of full impression and particularly when we get the when we get to the first Doctor, not just this story, but when we get stories which are narrated by, uh, for example, William Russell, there's a real tendency to do like a full-on Hartnell impression. We get lots of hmm and ha ha and yes and oh dear my boy and all this kind of stuff. And and um, this story is more restrained than that. And and although we get a little flavour of Pertwee coming through Caroline John's performance, she never does that kind of that kind of full-on impression. So there's a little bit of pompousness or maybe, you know, a, a little bit of humour or, or whatever when she's when she's uh, doing the Doctor's lines. Uh, but it's never a full impression. It's more restrained than that. Um, and so throughout this play, I think that restraint is, is one of the things that really allows it to, to kind of flourish. That sounds like a great sort of pivot point for us to talk about Mother Russia. I'll give the usual summary. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mother Russia has... The first Doctor, Stephen and Dodo, at birth, our first times covering Stephen and Dodo and our rare big finish quote-unquote appearance from Dodo, landing in the Russian Empire in 1812 during the campaign of Napoleon Bonaparte. There, Stephen makes a friend, Simeon, over the many months and 
time they sort of spend in that village. And that friend Simeon is unfortunately killed by an alien shapeshifter who winds up getting uh, in the guise of Simeon, sort of dishonoring him in the village, and eventually corners the first doctor and starts impersonating him. Stephen, confused and not understanding the nature of the alien, thinks the doctor has betrayed him and goes to chase him down as the shapeshifting doctor tries to ally himself with Napoleon Bonaparte. Eventually, Stephen catches up with Napoleon and the fake doctor, as well as the doctor and Dodo also reach him, and they all manage to sort of thwart the shapeshifter and be on their merry way. Fantastic. Thanks very much. So, I mean, I think I think we uh, are probably being sort of fairly clear about this, but we, we might as well ask the question anyway. Um, how did this one work out for you? Yeah, I think it's also a very solid, very good uh, companion chronicle. I think it has a lot of similarities with Bluetooth, sort of accidentally, but I think it also is this great sort of exploration of a companion and their friendship with one person. I think that sort of extra flavoring and going in deep early on in the story on this sort of relationship really helps flavor and color the rest of the story. And it, it gives that sort of emotional drive. And I think the stuff of the shapeshifter might be a little hacky. I think even if this is my first listen, I could still figure out where it was going before Steven does, which is a little frustrating. I think in general, I think uh, Peter Purves is a great narrator who really sells it. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Peter Purves is great in this. And he is... I suppose he... I, I don't want to describe him as a forgotten companion because that feels unfair now. He's had a few big Finnish performances and I think, generally speaking, you know, everybody that's listened to him will, will sort of say, oh, no, you know, he gives a really good performance. But when people talk about Steven Tyler, it's not a name that kind of jumps out. It, I think he is kind of forgotten in that kind of latter Hartnell era, especially because his, his, his departure story doesn't exist, The Savages. Um, I think that means he does just sort of get unfairly forgotten. And so having something like Mother Russia act as a, a corrective to that, it, it's one of those things that like, this feels like a worthwhile use of Big Finish's time. It feels like a worthwhile use of uh, Peter Purvis. And it's a, it's a very, very strong script from, uh, from Mark Platt. But it's just one of those things. It's like, yeah, this is a companion that can really stand to be fleshed out. There's plenty of space to do really interesting kind of things with it, especially like his loyalty and the way that he reacts to the situations and how he, you know, he struggles to do nothing and, and all this kind of stuff, little details about how he was uh, in the Space Force and how he could always find something to talk to. All these little like character details, just like Bluetooth, just like it had with Liz. It's the same kind of um, process here, but, but sort of obviously, you know, delivered differently for this character. And it's just such a, yeah, it's such a, a good way of, of fleshing out this character and letting us see him function in a story which really does feel, I think, kind of very Hartnellian. This do, it doesn't feel like a reach for this to be. It's a, it's a pseudo-historical, okay, fine. But there's nothing about this that would be difficult for it to have been made in Lime Grove in 1965 or whatever. You know, it, it, you'd need one village set, maybe one hall set for Moscow, um, and then a, a couple of bits of wood. That's all this would take. And so that can often feel limiting when it comes to these kind of stories. But in this one, it just feels like a really accurate way of, of recreating the Hartnell era in shorthand so that we can get the time to explore Stephen's character. And uh, it's just really successful in that. Oh, absolutely. It's, yeah... Like the Bluetooth, it really does sort of go in on 
this character and really fleshing him out. And I think that's so welcome here. It's a character, like you said, not quite forgotten thanks to Big Finish, but definitely one where the show itself left a lot of details sort of missing. And details that, as you can tell from this story, are very fascinating. Like his com- perspective coming from the future and his loyalty to the Doctor. I think all of that, all those traits are used so well here. And again, I think that's why that new friendship is so important because it really colors Steven's character in a way that he didn't really have a chance to do on TV because it wasn't as character-focused back then. Well, I think also not only his loyalty to the Doctor here, but I think his loyalty to Semyon as well, especially once we get to the point where it seems like it's revealed that, um, you know, somehow Semyon, well, we, we know as the, as the audience um, that, that Semyon's been replaced at that point. Um, but, you know, he's even when Semyon is acting out of character, um, Stephen is determined to stand by him. You know, he's going to be the best man at his wedding, um, which is a not insignificant detail. And it, it's also a way of helping to sort of delineate the amount of time that the characters spend here as well without sort of doing the whole, oh, grand, you know, whatever, we've been here for X number of weeks and da 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 we, we get it told that they've stayed there for a period of time. Or, rather amusingly, we get the line, winter is coming, mm-hmm. which uh, obviously has a lot more resonance now than it did when this was first released. Uh, but, you know, we have all those kind of details shaded in and Stephen's loyalty towards Semyon, the way that he'll stand up for him, even when he's he seems cert- it seems all but certain that, that Semyon has actually done something wrong or has, you know... Stephen as a character won't let that be the issue um, and that speaks volumes about the character himself without again you know sort of endless reams of, of, of exposition and and you know that just it, it it makes the character feel so well-rounded and, and sort of so genuine and importantly I think we don't just get the character as you know he's loyal and strong or whatever you know he also gets to make an arse of himself when he falls in the river and you know some other guy in the village is joking that you know Ivan the terrible sturgeon got away from him and all this kind of stuff so it's you know okay it's a silly light scene but it just again it makes the character feel more rounded we're not just saying okay let's make this character a, a great guy and a you know stand up noble sort of person yeah okay he can also fall flat in his arse and, and make an idiot of himself and it's so important that we get those kind of details for the character as well because then we get to appreciate really kind of everything about him yeah it's so like you said like it lets him be flawed and that i think is so important and like he's not just making an ass of himself but he's also gets to be wrong about the sort of shapeshifter and not sort of figure it out i mentioned that being frustrating earlier and it sort of is from one perspective but it also really makes his character feel more real the fact that he has these frustrations and is still willing to go after what he perceives as the doctor, even after he sort of spits in his face, I think she tells you a lot about who Stephen is without saying it in so many words. Well, it absolutely does. And I agree with what you said earlier about the fact that sometimes, you know, as, as the audience listening to it, we're ahead of the character and that can be a little bit frustrating, especially at one point, it's just incredibly clear that Stephen isn't dealing with the doctor. He's dealing with the kind of the shape-shifting alien. And it's just, it's glaringly obvious. And it makes the character seem slightly thick that he doesn't pick up on it. But it's sort of, it's slightly necessary, but it's a bit clumsy. Um, but I just think for the most part, yeah, it, it's just a really good kind of invocation of, of, of that character. Um, but yeah, obviously we have... Um, I think a much wider range of characters here than we had in the, in the mm-hmm. Bluetooth. So, uh, al- alongside um, you know uh, Stephen uh, Peter Purvis has to 
um, sort of be able to successfully uh, delineate as the narrator, uh, the Doctor and Dodo and Simeon and Napoleon and the alien and kind of, uh, you know, everything else. Um, and he does such a such a good job of that. I shouldn't say the alien. Obviously, the interrogator is somebody else. Um, but he, he, you know, when the, when the alien has possessed the doctor or, or, or whatever, or Simeon, um, it's still him doing the performance. And he's so good at it. You know, he's really... But he is doing a Hartnell impression. That's what I was, I mentioned earlier in the Bluetooth. He is. He has got the, hmm, yes, my boy, and all, all this kind of stuff. But he's also doing a... He's doing a quite a dynamic. He's doing that impish kind of season three doctor, and he does, and it's it's very distinct from say the way that that William Russell does it, who 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 does play the crotchety side much harder, or indeed the way that David Bradley plays it, which is a, a little bit more sort of um, not gentle, but a little more twinkly, if you know what I mean. Um, whereas he's going for that slightly mischievous. Um, slightly impish kind of season three doctor and he does a really good job of capturing that yeah I think it's a really good performance of the first doctor I think it's a tricky one to nail and he's not quite at the level of mimicry of William Russell but it definitely is effective for this story and I think that's all you really need for these kinds of stories is just to sort of get it across without it being necessarily one-to-one accurate and so by capturing the spirit so well I definitely think it's successful well yeah absolutely and um even Dodo comes across well here. And that's... <laughs> I mean, you know, with uh, all respect to Jackie Lane, um, Dodo isn't the best character that the Doctor Who has come up with or the best character that, that the first Doctor ever travelled with. It's not really her fault, but mm. she's a bit of a nothing character that never really gets anything to define her. Um, but I think one of the impressive things um, that this play manages to do is it manages to make her seem... They're quite likable. She's a little bit of a tomboy. She's a little bit, not rebellious exactly, but she's got a little bit of, you know, she's got a bit of spunk to her and she's not prepared to just get pushed around all the time. She doesn't fall over and trip her, you know, twist her ankle. Um, it's just, this, yeah, I mean, there's a limited amount you can do with Dodo, especially, you know, obviously since we don't have um, Jackie Lane on hand as it is. But it's just, um, I don't know. I think the, I think the character comes across at least as well in this story as she ever did on TV. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. I think, I mean, there's a reason Jackie Lane there is like one of the few, if not only, people to not really reprise her role from Classic Who. I think it's because of, uh, it's just not a very solid character and she was just sort of reluctant to sort of step back in the shoes of a character she got a lot of grief for, which is understandable. But yeah, I think this does use her better than the TV show ever did. Absolutely. And even then, it's a sidelined role. But still, you definitely get a lot more of the personality shine through it and why that would be appealing. And another great example of how Big Finish sort of fleshes these characters out. Yeah, even when they don't actually have the people there to be able to, you know, deliver the role and, and flesh it out. And and uh, I think it's I think it's Dodo. So very early on in the play, she says, oh, Earth has a certain smell to it. And even if it was the wrong place or the wrong time or whatever, the wrong country, I think it is. Uh, it's Earth has the right smell to it, and it's that's a again, it's a tiny little character beat, but it sort of you know it suggests that that Dodo herself is paying attention to something, and honestly, just that one line I think might be as, as much characterization as she got in in, in her uh, her time in TV. And again, I'm I'm really not laying this at the feet of of uh, of Jackie Lane. It, it's not her fault. 
she just she just got some she got dealt a bum hand and there's there's not a lot of uh, what you can do with this but um the way that this story kind of portrays the the sort of slightly teasing friendship between her mm-hmm. and Stephen is I think also just very nicely realized he's clearly the grown up he's clearly the more mature one of the two um, but they still they just have a nice little uh, a nice little rapport and the fact that it's uh, Peter Purvis that's playing both characters you know that could easily just not work but but it, it really does here yeah I also really think the other character story I flashed out really well as well I love this sort of mini drama with Glasha and Glasha's mother where this is the woman Simeon is sort of betrothed to marry and then he has a sort of untimely end and then someone impersonating him sort of like dishonors him in this very brave way and so you have this woman who like the person who loved her sort of rejects her even though it's not actually him and then she's just sort of left waiting for him to come back and sort of make things right and he never will and it's such a great little drama sort of packed into this episode almost entirely in sort of like end of episode one being episode two and then so just like a small span you get this whole world of a new character and the fact that the writer's able to sort of develop that is so interesting yeah no it absolutely is and i think the way that it's used is um i think this is sort of true really of 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 kind of almost all the beats that we get here both in terms of character and plot they kind of they're there in order to study how um steven reacts to them but but with for example that marriage and the dishonor um and the idea that they'll lie that you know that the mother won't tell the truth about what actually happened to simeon the fact that he's dead it's, it's easier, apparently, to allow the daughter to think that he was, you know, dishonoured and, and sort of will never be seen again. That's an interesting beat. It, that's one of the, the, the sort of um, elements of the play that Stephen doesn't quite directly get defined by. But at the same time, you're right, it adds that extra element of drama. It gives the play somewhere else to go so that not all of the elements within the play are just about how Stephen reacts to them. It gives, it gives the, the real feeling that these are characters who have got lives and opinions that, that kind of grow out of their background and where they come from and their culture. And we'll carry on doing that once the TARDIS is dematerialized and everybody's you know left for the, the next adventure. The, the, it makes them feel like really sort of properly rounded people and characters. Yeah, and I... When I vaguely referred to the writer, I then looked up who the writer was. It's Mark Platt, who yeah. has such a good track record with this sort of thing. And I think he just really gets how to sort of flesh out these characters, both familiar and new, in such efficient but also very warm ways. And I really love what he does with everyone in this story. Well, I do as well. And um, like even the science fiction element here, even the aliens, it's, um, I don't want to say it's rot, that's too strong. It's not the mm-hmm. most important part of the play, though. Um, but I still think it functions absolutely fine. Um, that really is there to give Stephen something, you know, to react against. I mean, that's the whole point of the narrator, as it were. Um, and and that, that element is fine. And even although that's the, maybe the, the, the least important element of the play, it's a sort of fairly sort of standard crashed alien romping about the jungle or whatever. It's, uh, it's a jungle, the forest. Um, it's, it's still good and that's sort of just true of everything here i think it, it just all sort of comes together in a way that sort of feels very elegant and if if the sci-fi kind of monster element isn't necessarily the most original 
one that we could possibly have ever had. It it doesn't get in the way of anything. It still allows the story to function. Um, and and that's what it does. It 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 all works very smoothly. Yeah, I think smooth is a great sort of characterization for the story. It's just very on every level, very well developed and very well thought through. And I mean, there's no crazy swings for the fences here, but I don't think we really need that. I think, especially just sort of realigning ourselves through this era of who and with these characters that when a story is released, we haven't seen in such a long time. I think it's good that we just have a very solid story that is ambitious enough to sort of have this sort of good concept, but is more importantly focused on this sort of character work. I think the one other element of the story that sort of sparks interest for me is uh, the alien sort of backstory, which is very, again, very briefly and efficiently sketched in, but has a lot to the imagination of being sort of unwillingly doing this, this sort of forced to be a spy just by nature because of how it was designed. Uh, sort of shades of Year of the Pig, which we sort of discussed last week, actually, now I think about it, this sort of created thing that has to be victim of its own nature. I think that's so unsettling and so interesting and a really good hook, even if it's not the hook of the story. No, I would definitely agree with that. I, it's one of those things that um, it doesn't exactly make the, 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 the monster sympathetic, but I think it makes it relatable. And, and that's a very important difference. You, you don't want this creature who's they're going around stealing identities and, and sort of murdering people. You don't want that character to become automatically sympathetic but because he's got that backstory there i think it at least makes it a, a relatable thing and and that allows you to put some kind of emotional investment on on that side of the scales as well on that side of the story um and so when we we, we do finally get all the details when they come out it, it's easy to at least at least have a degree of understanding as to to why this creature has has behaved in the way that it has yeah, and I think that degree of understanding really adds like a very necessary layer. It's not just like a villain who's evil for the sake of evil. It's truly something we can understand, and just that little sketching in goes a long way. Yeah, it does, and I think that's also true of um, Napoleon as well. And especially when you get a character like Napoleon turning up in a play like this, you know that's a uh, that's a big historical character to take a, a swing at, and we've kind of brushed up against that you know in the first doctor's uh, sort of time before with the reign of terror um but we never actually you know we, we dealt with Robespierre and whatever there but we don't actually get to get as far as uh, napoleon and we do get a few sort of details sketched in here so i think it's the same kind of trick it's it's allowing just about enough um information about napoleon where he's understandable he's definitely i don't think he's ever portrayed as as sympathetic which is correct um but i think there's understandable to him i like the fact that he gets a, he's given a line like oh well i'm sure the english have have uh, you know some noble people as well isn't necessarily a line that you'd expect for a character you'd expect a character like that to despise the english um but he's given that or you know, he, he, he pays a very backhanded compliment to Stephen, who he says, well, you know, at least you're honest with me, so I'll do you the decency of, of giving you an honourable execution. You know, the little details about Napoleon, and, and I think he is he is being drawn in exactly the same kind of way. Yeah, I think it's a celebrity historical, it doesn't overwhelm the story, which is always nice in and of itself, but also, I think you're right, I think he's well characterised, and like, is an asset to the story for sure. It really sets us in a time and place without 
again, like I said, becoming the focus of the story. Yeah, well, I think that's um, I think that's probably a yeah very well said, and I think that's probably a, a good way of ending our discussion um, on these two plays. Um, so yeah, I think now we can uh, maybe uh, pop over to our mailbox. What have we got this week, Kev? So we have a letter from John, who thought we'd he'd call for something to review outside of Big Finish. They write, I have been really enjoying the recent reviews and reviews of TV episodes, like the Spyfall season opener and the Christmas specials you did. It's been great to have you broadening horizons with the Doctor Who you covered, so I wondered if would you consider reviewing something from the original 6 through the 89 run? You cover the old Doctors on audio, so why not on video too? They go on to write about how many of the stories we cover wouldn't be the ones pretty much everyone knows. Things like Caves of Androzani and Robots of Death are cited as ones that the consensus is pretty well formed up on. But something more unusual might be more interesting. And he specifically recommends something from the Pertwee and Tom Baker eras as his favorites. And um, yeah, I'm pretty open to that idea. I think it's mostly just a matter of scheduling since we have so much Big Finish to get through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're never going to run a Big Finish yeah. to cover. That, that much is for certain. Um, but I'm definitely up for that. Yeah, we've kind of tangentially covered a bit of um classic doctors so we had like our heart special for example uh where we discussed a few stories that we liked but we didn't dedicate i don't think we've ever dedicated a well like one episode to one sort of story in the way that we've done for you know a, a few of the sort of like we did the christmas specials and, and and stuff like that in the in the new era so i'm absolutely down for uh down for uh covering those stories yeah well that's uh, like the poetry and baker years that's a wide range for us. <laughs> That's a lot. We're going to have to have a discussion about that off air, I think, and we'll see if we can narrow it down to something which we can uh, we can sort of usefully um, get to work in. So, yeah, definitely. Actually, I, I, I should say, um, yeah, I also really like the idea of doing something that isn't just like the usual kind of like, you know, top 10 Tom Baker stories or something like that. Now, whether we're able to find a story that we actually want to talk about like that, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we will. But yeah, it would be nice to cover something that isn't just, yeah, like the usual sort of favourites or the usual greatest hits. Yeah, I'm into this idea pretty much all around, except for the part where I don't know when to schedule it. I mean, like I said, the balance of finding a story that is both unusual but not talked to death about already is pretty hard. And then also... You know, I mean, I, there's so much Big Finish I'm enthusiastic to cover, too. And we are a Big Finish podcast. So I don't want to rule it out, for sure. It's like, I, I'm pretty sure the motivation will come to me eventually. It's not going to happen next week because I don't feel motivated next week. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's fair enough. Maybe we should uh, sort of throw it out to our listeners. If if um, yeah. if there are pe- if there's uh, sort of people out there that can think of a, you know, like a a John Pertwee story that isn't just going to be like Spearhead from De- Spearhead from Space or, or like Carnival of Monsters that might be interesting to cover or if you can think of a, a Tom Baker story that isn't just going to be yeah Warrior's Gate or Talons or something like that then then you know like get in touch with us let us know what you think and uh, and, and yeah we'll, we'll, we'll give it due consideration for sure alright if you want to reach out to us via email you can find our email address you at gmail.com you can also find us on Twitter at Talking Who to You. You can find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And you can find more JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. 
Next week, we are going to be returning to the era of the Fifth Doctor, and we are going to be returning to the planet of Peladon. So, we are going to be covering the Bride of Peladon. So, we'll be back with the Doctor in his fifth incarnation, and Perry, and Aramem. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But, until then, keep talking.